Every year in China, 10 million high school students sit down for a two- or three-day test that will make or break their future. The Gao Cow is the single indicator that is used to determine who is going to get into a selective college and who isn't, who is going to move forward, and who is going to be left behind. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about how a tiny difference of just a point can be magnified into something that changes everything. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Creative isn't who you are, it's what you do. Along the way, creativity has gotten a mystical rap, as if it's some sort of gift. It's not. It's a choice. It's a skill. If you have a job where you get to decide what you do, you are a creative, a working creative, and you can get better at it. I'm thrilled to say that the Creatives Workshop is back, the most active of all the Akimbo workshops. It's about people who want to level up and make a difference with their creative work. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Everywhere we look in our modern world, we are seeing the magnification of small differences. Just a couple points on the SAT determines whether or not someone gets into a famous college. That helps make a difference as to whether or not they got into a famous law school. Then, effort combined with luck determines whether they made law review or just missed it. Making law review helps them get a clerkship for a federal judge. Not making law review makes that really difficult. A clerkship for a federal judge is magnified into the fast track, and then maybe one day you end up on the Supreme Court, all because of a six-point difference on your SATs. Of course, it's not all because of this, but it is a magnification process, something that we've been doing for a long time to sort people out. Think about the movies. During the last decade or so, Hollywood released two movies a week to wide distribution, just a hundred movies a year. They pick such a small number of movies with tens of thousands in some level of development. They pick a hundred because they say, A, we need money to be able to make movies. B, we need money to promote the movies. And C, there aren't that many movie theaters. To go into wide release, We need to be in a lot of theaters, and there aren't that many. So scarcity drives the fact that there is scarcity, scarce money, scarce ability to pay attention, scarce theaters to put the movies in. Even Netflix, which has an infinite number of theaters, only released 371 titles or episodes in 2019. 371 dwarfs the movie industry, but has nothing in common with the tens of thousands of screenplays that are just waiting to get picked. But, and you're probably ahead of me now, there are other areas in our culture in which humans venture in which there is no scarcity. Amazon doesn't want to tell us how many books there are on the Kindle, but there are more than 5 million of them. There are 1,000 700 new Kindle books published every single day. 
That's pretty much 100 every waking hour. Why don't they want to tell us how many books there are on the Kindle? Or think about how many acrylic paintings or poems are written every year. No one's even counting that, but there's got to be more than a billion. Does the fact that no one can stop you from writing a poem make it more likely that you will write a poem? So there's an interesting balance here between scarcity and value. Last year, 30,000 nurse practitioners graduated. Nurse practitioners are capable of writing prescriptions and dealing directly with patients without a doctor. 30,000 nurse practitioners in the United States is about one in 10,000 numbers of people who need a nurse practitioner. That number is laughably small. The typical nurse practitioner sees three patients an hour and makes $110,000 a year. What would happen if we had enough nurse practitioners that nurse practitioners saw four patients an hour or five patients an hour and maybe made $100,000 a year instead? Or what if we went in the other direction and they only saw two patients an hour, giving them focused, dedicated time and made, I don't know, $80,000 a year? The point is we're not running out of patients, but we are out of nurse practitioners. So what is it that makes somebody want to make a movie, but makes them perhaps hesitate when no one stops them from making a Kindle book? Well, it's scarcity at some level in our culture that creates value. So now we go back to the Gao Cao, 10 million people who took a test all at once. In June of 2020, they didn't take the test because of the pandemic. But it's interesting to note that going forward, online education may make it so that there is no such thing as scarce spaces at a selective college, unless we want there to be. Let's think for a minute about the organizations that accredit higher education, ostensibly created to make sure that the quality was there. That's not really what they do. They enforce, for example, how many PhDs there are per student. But if the purpose of a college is to teach people, there's no evidence, zero, that PhDs are better at that than people who are simply good at teaching. Now, having a ratio of PhDs per student simply makes it harder to start and run a university. Lots of the things that are in place at an accrediting institution exist to limit the number of things that are getting accredited. How do they decide how many people will pass the bar exam when the lawyers take it in California? Well, it's not the absolute value of their score. It's how many lawyers are they prepared to make this year in California. It's well known that it's really hard to pass the bar in places like Hawaii, where lawyers would like to go and retire, but pretty easy to pass the bar in states that have a shortage of lawyers. Because the bar exam is not a measure of, are you good enough to be a lawyer? It's simply a barrier to make sure that there's scarcity so that people will value it, go on the journey, and want to be a lawyer in the first place. And so the long tail collides headfirst into the power law curve. The power law curve, otherwise known as Ziff's law, points out that the ones all the way to the left, the hits, they get a lot of attention. 
And way down at the other end of the curve, as Chris Anderson has pointed out, is the long tail. The long tail, when you add it up, is just as big as the short head, but the attention paid to every single individual on the long tail is small indeed. If you release a song on iTunes or Spotify, if you write a book on the Kindle, almost no one is going to read it. If your movie gets greenlit for wide release after the pandemic, far more people are going to see it because there's scarcity. There's an enforced short head, just two movies a week. And so we have a choice to make as we create online learning, as we create more and more long tails. And the choice is, will we as humans seek to do poetry or acrylic painting or Kindle books, things where no one can stop us? Or will we devote huge amounts of our time and energy into hoping for the magnification of small differences? Because there's a real problem with the magnification of small differences. And the problem is we waste potential. We waste potential because someone who's almost good enough to qualify for the Olympics doesn't. And then they don't develop. They don't get the coaching. They don't get all the other things that would have helped them get to the next level. We waste potential because at the age of two or three or four, we look at someone based on who their parents are, what their race is, where they grew up, and we don't give them the attention that they need to get to the next level. And so by the time the, quote, selective high school is looking for potential students to magnify their small differences, they're already one, two, three percent behind with no hope of catching up. And so to get specific, I don't think it's difficult for any of us to imagine that just five years from now, there's an automated series, artificially intelligence-driven, of courses, of learning, of education that exist online that anybody with internet access who wants to could put themselves through. And that it will be shown, I am certain, that going through this accredits you better than going to one of those other institutions. It makes you actually better at whatever thing we were just sorting for. That if you are willing to go through the grueling effort of using this process, you will come out at the other end knowing more than the hand-built process. And given that an online interaction scales to infinity, given that the shelves of the Kindle will never be filled, are we okay with that? Or are we more comfortable embracing the mythology of the magnification of small differences? One last practical thought on this. For years and years, Google used a mysterious algorithm to decide who would rank high in the Google results. And what we know is that you are a hundred times more likely to get clicked on if you're on the first page of Google results than if you're on the third page. Now, let's remember that for any valuable search, there's more than a thousand pages of results. So there's a thousand pages of results and almost every click goes to the first page. The people on the first page, the websites on the first page, might be what, 0.01% better than the websites that are on the fifth page? Better at what? Better by what metric? It's a mystery. They won't tell us. But what happens is the people who locked into the first page, whether through SEO or just good fortune, get more traffic. More traffic gets them more resources. More resources lets them invest more and more in whatever it took 
to get on that front page. And the process continues and continues until power accrues to both Google, because they get to dictate the algorithm, and the people who run those sites on the front page. What would have happened if instead of Google showing the front page to everybody, showed the first page to, I don't know, 10% of the people who visited any search, and the second page to 9%, and the third page to 8%. Do the math any way you want. They could have done this. They could have easily randomized and minimized the difference of small differences. But instead, they decided to magnify them because it gave them power, because it made everyone pay attention to their mysterious algorithm. And so, we're looking right now at a world torn between building more choke points, even though they are artificial, and embracing the long tail, even though it offers less in the way of scarcity and thus value. There isn't one obvious answer, but when we think about the nurse practitioners, it seems to me that what we ought to be defaulting to is amplifying potential. How do we find more and more people who can figure out how to make a living doing something that benefits our community and then strip away all the artificial barriers that keep that number small and instead say, what would happen if they were as plentiful as poems? What would happen if there were plenty of people doing health care or working on mental health in our community or helping with food supplies? Go down the list. We can do that if we figure out how to make the long tail attractive enough to get the right people to embrace it. Thanks for listening. This was quite a rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. By my calculations, this is episode 200 of Akimbo, and it wouldn't be possible without my producer, Alex De Palma, and without you. Thank you for showing up week after week, year after year. This is clearly a labor of love. I hope that comes through, and if you're loving it, that makes it worth it. So with that said, as you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We've got three really surprisingly juicy questions this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This is Bill Heitch in Austin. Seth, I have been struggling with the question of 
does it work or is it working in relation to my project? And yesterday during a walk, I had a real uh, insight that I wanted to share with you and ask a question about. The fact of the matter is that my project is working for me. <laughs> it's consistent with who I am. It's making a difference in the world. And it is inside of a context of a business model that I found to be successful before. So my question is, is do you think my insight is valid? I mean, is it working? Well, is it working for me is something that makes a big difference in my desire to keep this project alive. So thank you for all the work you do. Bye-bye. Thanks for this, Bill. The market economy is fascinating because markets are sensing mechanisms. Markets are voluntary interactions in which people who need or want something show up and connect with someone who has something to offer. Markets fall apart when things like monopolists show up, where people don't have a choice. But markets aren't the reason we do our work. That sometimes it seems like the only things that some people think are worth doing are things that make a lot of money, as if money profit is the only measure of utility. Well, if you think about someone who runs a small well in a small village, they might not be making a lot of money, but if they disappeared, people would notice immediately. Their work is vitally important, but that doesn't mean they're making a fortune. On the other hand, someone who's making a luxury good, say some crazy NFT, and earns $50 million from selling some digital file, they may have made a lot of money. There may be a market for what they made, but it's not clear to me or to most people that what they did was more important than running a well that provides water to keep people alive in a small village. So your question, is it working, is super important. And you are correct, working for who? If you're doing something that you believe in, but the market doesn't want to engage with you, you have to acknowledge the fact that it's not working for them. Because if it was working for them in the way you told your story, delivered your product or service, priced it, etc., they'd buy it. On the other hand, if you're doing something that you're not proud of, that's making a lot of money, well, then it's not working for you. So thank you for your plain-spoken, clear way to help people understand that sometimes we keep track of precisely the wrong things and that engaging with the market to do our work is a balancing act between giving people something that they value and doing something that we value. Hi, Seth. Kathy in Michigan. I enjoyed your helmet episode. Horseback riding injuries at one point in time were a high on the number of emergency room admissions in the summer. And in rodeo, we can still see where only a limited number of participants wear helmets. Um, in the show horse world, there were bitter debates about helmets many deaths and traumatic brain injuries. When helmets became compulsory, then the status thing was to have the $800 Swarovski crystal and studded helmet. Question for you is, can you comment on an even more compelling uh, opt-in option would be, here are your helmets and the price is included. 
And then the second question is, is the next frontier fall protection for seniors? Um, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal and Fi Driving Miss Norma are two books that talked about concussion and hip injuries taking many cognitively sharp seniors out of the game. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for this, Kathy, and I really appreciate your leadership. The thing about helmets is very similar to the thing about vaccines, which is similar to the thing about seatbelts, which is to, you can go on and on. It's always about fear. There's different kinds of fear. Some people get a vaccine because they are afraid of getting sick and dying, or because they are afraid of infecting someone else. Other people decide not to get a vaccine based on false information appearing real because they are afraid of either how it will make them feel to get one or how it will affect their standing in the society that they are keeping track of. And so the thing about helmets and other interventions for seniors comes down to this idea of fear that sooner or later, most of us realize we're going to die. And most of the time, we live in community. Seniors are too often isolated, but even when they're slightly isolated, they're still seen by others. And in the face of that, some people deal with their fear of the unknown by trying to outfit themselves in a way that will help them live longer. That wearing a helmet is obvious for someone like this. Taking their meds makes perfect sense. But other people, either to avoid a dialogue monologue with themselves about this fear or to send a signal to others, what will they say if I wear this helmet? That might get in the way of someone doing something that they need to do. So part of the job of marketing and culture is to create clear and easy to follow pathways so that people end up doing things that they're glad they did. In high school, the fear of getting left out might drive someone to start smoking. No one I've ever met said, I smoked one cigarette and I really enjoyed it. People don't smoke cigarettes because they like it. They do it in the long run because they're addicted, and they do it in the short run because of social pressure. And social pressure is a cultural artifact, and we have to figure out what are we pressuring people to do and what are we pressuring people to not do. And part of what we need to itemize are the things that will help them and us live in community. So I know that that's not quite the answer to your question, but here it is. When in doubt, look for the fear. Hey, Seth, it's Zach calling from New Hampshire. Um, thank you for the work and the insight um, that you provide to so many of us. My question today is, how do you think about the idea of burnout? Um, as somebody who works in the nonprofit sector, I interface a lot with educators, community-based organizations, and it feels like everyone right now is exhausted, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it. Um, so have you ever felt burnout? Is burnout even the right word that we should be using to describe this, this feeling of exhaustion? Um, because normally this work feels exciting and inspiring, but for whatever reason right now, everybody... Um, isn't feeling that. They're feeling tired. So curious what thoughts or insight you might provide. Thank you. Thank you for this, Zach. Thanks for the work that you are doing. Burnout is real, for sure. It's interesting, though, that farmers 
don't get burnout from actually plowing the fields. If they get burnout at all, they get it from the stress of having commitments, having payments due, having things that should grow, not growing. In fact, it's when they're dealing with the uncertain, with the things out of their control. It's when the universe doesn't align with what they were hoping for that a certain special kind of stress shows up. And this is the stress of wanting to do two things at the same time, stay and run away, succeed or face what's actually happening around us. And this stress is enervating. It can undermine so much of our mental health. And one of the things that's happening post-pandemic, having survived over a year in this state of limbo, is that lots of people are exhausted. We're not exhausted because we're not well-rested. We had plenty of time to sit in our house and do very little, sleeping at night. We weren't racing to catch airplanes. We weren't running marathons. No, we're not physically exhausted. We're emotionally exhausted because what's happening around us as the result of our labor, our wishes, our hopes, our dreams, isn't matching the expectations we had set out for it. And so, yeah, I experience burnout all the time and sometimes worse than others, but I try to get back on track, not by forcing the world to do what I want it to, but by digging in deeper on accepting what is actually happening right in front of me. Because acceptance, being able to play the cards that we were dealt, being able to lean into possibility at the very same time, we don't try to undo the past or even the present reality. That is a path forward because it turns out that whatever turns out is going to turn out and we can influence it. But our mental cycles, our telekinesis, that is just going to exhaust us. So what we're going to need to do is to figure out what we can lean into with leverage and how we can productively accept the things we can't change. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's been 200 fun episodes, and I'm thrilled to be on this ride with you. Keep making a ruckus. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age, and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. 
more than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.